0: I think a lot of people have this tendency to be like, ah, well, humans are naturally monogamous. And I don't know that there's much truth to that. And it's very funny that within the context of like such a materialist world, that suddenly we need to go back to nature when it comes to relationship structures.
1: On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to be talking about how things like consumer psychology and capitalism intersect with polyamory, as well as things about unlearning sex negativity that we've been brought up with, unlearning things like compulsory monogamy, and a really cool framework called Bayes. And to talk about all of that, we have as a special guest, Sam Cat. Sam Cat is a proud, queer, polyamorous content creator and coach they created Shrimp Teeth in 2018 as a site that offers blog posts, personal coaching about how we communicate and how we think about polyamory sex and queerness. They also recently started the Shrimp Teeth podcast to continue these conversations and to talk with other sex educators in an audio format. So Sam, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
2: Yeah, we're really excited to have you. I think first question to the top of my mind is why shrimp teeth? Yeah, yeah that's all, been all of our questions for like <laughs> weeks know, preparing I was, for this interview.
1: It's
3: <laughs> oh, like, I don't eat shrimp, but I'm pretty sure they don't have teeth, although maybe they do. I think
2: they have mandibles, but I, that probably isn't as catchy. <laughs> <laughs> shrimp
3: mandibles. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, maybe I will do a rebranding. And <laughs> no, go it's
0: mandibles. It's I feel so embarrassed because everybody asks me this and it's such a just nonsense story but i'll <laughs> give you a really quick rundown i was in design school i had to make a like fake website and i was like smoking a little weed it was like oh I <laughs> okay great a great like dentist for crustaceans so off i went <laughs> made the fake <laughs> website had the domain name shrimpteeth.com, and then when it came to actually like launching my company, I just like kept it. So people always assume that it's like a code or a euphemism for like a vulva, vagina, or something like that, and I just kind of like let it slide. And now I have to actually like give the real reason uh, behind this. So it makes me blush every time. I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I done?
2: No, I I love I love knowing that because yeah, when I was when I was researching and looking into some of your other you know like your social media and like other websites and stuff like that, like yeah, there was somewhere in there that was like a, a handle that I think with shrimp dentist or something like that and that's why i was like wow she's really invested in the whole shrimp tea thing i thought for sure it must be some kind of really important identity aspect Mm -hmm. like i had a vision of a shrimp once when i was growing up like no, I like that think,
0: Yeah. I think deep down inside, like my parents, when I was really young, they're like, ah, you're gonna become a dentist. So I feel like it's stuck with me. Really in those, wow. like, subconscious ways. But yeah, if you want to like psychoanalyze me, you can do
2: that. I'm that sure. that's like your oh, alternate God. reality version guess, of you so, is the right? dentist. How funny. Okay, so you didn't become a dentist. You got into sex education and queer sex education how did that happen for you? Yeah, <laughs> much to my parents' delight, uh, you know. <laughs> no. So I
0: studied to be a packaging designer and ended up working at these like really big corporations, then went on to do my master's in consumer psychology. And pretty much, I just like to joke, but it's not a joke that, you know, studying consumerism made me an anarchist. And I realized like, <laughs> I cannot do this anymore. Mm. So. As soon as I graduated from NYU with this brand new masters, I just bounced. I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I left New York and moved to Portland. And then I started, yeah, just like freelance graphic designing and doing that kind of like little side hustle. And at some point I got a contract with a safer sex education center in Toronto at a university and they commissioned me to do like an erotic coloring book for them all around consent and I was like wow this project is so cool and we kept that working relationship for I would say a few months and they just kind of gave me the inspiration and also I guess like the self-belief that I needed to be like no you are passionate about this you've been thinking about this talking about sex ed for a really long time so just go ahead and do it. And Shrimp Teeth, like the Instagram page, really started as my personal exploration of queerness, of polyamory. I'm sure we'll get into my journey a little bit later. But eventually I found all these people who had really similar experiences to me and Then, you know, my DMs were blowing up and people were like, hey, can I pay you? Can I talk to you about these things? And I was like, you know what? Sure. I don't know a ton, but I'm definitely willing to point you to resources. I'm willing to point you to other therapists that are queer friendly, kink affirming, all of the lovely things. And so I became a middleman is how I really view myself. Mm. Where I'm technically a psychologist, but I'm an unlicensed psychologist as a consumer psych. And so I'm really, really great at just finding connections and being like, oh, I see that you have this need. You're looking for this kind of service. Let me point you in the right direction. And I've mm. just kind of used my training in that way to help folks who are navigating all these like really big relationship and sexuality questions. Nice. I love that. It's kinda like
1: yeah. being the sort of working at like the tourism bureau when people are entering polyamory and and you're like, let me point you to the right direction of what you're looking for.
0: Totally. I was right. It was like before I was helping folks find what kind of toothpaste they wanted, I was like, ah, (laughs) you need whitening toothpaste. Here you go. And now I'm just like, oh, maybe relationship anarchy or solo polyamory for you (laughs) and just pointing them to different options.
2: Yeah. I I'm really curious about it sounds like definitely you really went on a journey from where you started with deciding to get a masters in consumer psychology to where you ended and I I do want to go back to the beginning of that of like what drew you first into getting the masters
0: Yeah so I just was fascinated with the decision making pattern that people undergo when they're choosing objects you know especially coming from a packaging design background I just love things like I love objects I really have an affinity for well-designed yeah things Because your Instagram is
3: so beautiful like Uh, it's really (laughs) gorgeous to look at and yeah (laughs) consume from that level that's cool thank you makes a lot Um, of sense
0: yeah and so I wanted I really wanted to understand more like how do people make these decisions like why When you're faced with an aisle of toothpaste, do you go for this thing versus this other product? Unfortunately, when I got out of school and really got more into the industry, I realized like this is only about making money. And you know, I had a project where we ended up paying Michael Phelps eight million dollars, and I was just like, I don't feel good about this. Honestly, like this does not sit right. Yeah, it was even worse than that. It was a Colgate ad to save water. So we were incentivizing our consumers to stop wasting water. And we paid Michael Phelps like $8 Wow! And I was just like, I don't like this. This doesn't fit with my ethics. I cannot sleep well. Not to mention that the corporate just environment is a horrible place to work Mm -hmm. as a queer polyamorous person I just could not be myself I wasn't out so that was really the sort of yeah initiative to get out of that whole sector I just realized I wasn't myself and I needed a big change Mm.
2: and so landing more in the anarchy camp how, like basically, how did that intersect with also your personal journey of coming into your queerness and into non-monogamy as well? Were those things kind of happening in concert? Did one build upon the other?
0: Yeah, so it's one of those difficult things because I think we think of capitalism just as an economic system, but we don't necessarily realize how it really constructs the way that we see our place in the world and our relations to each other. And when we think of ourselves primarily as consumers, then we give ourselves permission to consume other people. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where a lot of like ownership myths come from. And I realized that by buying more and more and more into that system, I was really finding it hard to have healthy relationships, where I had a lot of people that I absolutely loved, you know, great partners, but there was always that level of like jealousy, possessiveness, and a lot of the toxic monogamy, I guess, that again, when I was seeing myself through this lens of like constantly buying things and possessing objects, it was easy to... Interact that way with other people, I guess. And so for me, the anarchist perspective was really just saying like, yeah, we don't need to rank people. We don't need to try to dominate one another. We don't need to try to own one another. We are better folks when we are able to, you know, own ourselves first and be respectful and genuinely connected with other people. And so that philosophy kind of pushed me into a lot more of the ethical non-monogamy camp. And obviously that went kind of hand in hand with my queer journey too. But yeah, that's how that really did on a professional
2: level. All right. That so makes a lot of
3: sense. Where and when did polyamory more become a part of your life? Was it kind of from your youth or very early on, or did it sort of evolve as this journey through ending your capitalism or, or at least like moving out of that. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it. it's
2: important to say like, I don't know that anybody can end capitalism. That's true. It's I, of, like, <laughs> I know. Exactly. Well but what's interesting though, what's interesting though is Emily, you said ending your capitalism. Well I kind of like yeah, that. I
3: did I, I when you were talking, I was like this is all fascinating and and I do kind of think as a culture right now we're in I've heard like the kind of the last like throes of capitalism to a degree. I don't know. And and clearly it's still it seems to matter very much to this country, but but I do wonder if there's a way in which we're starting to exit that because we realize how much like it's really awful to the society at large and right. it's just creating a larger and larger divide between people. But anyways, all that's all that aside, I'm interested in you and like where your polyamorous journey started.
0: Yeah. So I think my polyamorous journey started as soon as I started dating back Mm. when I was like 15 years old. So I was cheating on all of my partners. And I know that there's a pretty big resistance to saying like cheating and ethical non-monogamy are two separate things. And I really want to be able to hold space for that. But 15 year old me did not have the word mm-hmm. polyamory. I didn't mm-hmm. know that ethical non-monogamy existed. I just knew that I could not settle for one partner. So when I started dating my now ex-husband, <laughs> you know, I was seeing two, three other people at the same time. And I just felt deep, deep down in my bones that it didn't make sense for me to have to live in this, mm, I guess live with the expectation that I would just settle down with one person, get married, have kids and live happily ever after. That story didn't fit for me. And so him and I essentially, yeah, we're best friends. And people were like, ah, you're a boy, you're a girl. I'm not now, but you know, back in the day I was. And so they're just like, you must be dating. So we started dating and then we went off to college separately and entered kind of like a don't ask, don't tell agreement where both of Mm. us were seeing other people just practically like needing that human connection especially since we were so far apart that we didn't see each other you know once every three months four months something like that and so we were maintaining multiple relationships and it was only when we moved back in together you know five or six years later that we realized like okay we're trying to do the monogamous thing and it's not working. And that was when I really came out as gay and was like, you know what, I don't think I'm even bi. Like, our sexual relationship isn't working for me. I love you so much as a nesting partner. That part of our life feels really lovely, but I can't be your one and only. And so we really started figuring out like, what does a relationship look like for us that gives us the opportunity to have other people in our life who are filling those like romantic and sexual needs while still being able to cohabitate and just have almost like this weird platonic husband-wife kind of situation so yeah that was kind of my journey through this and obviously like your podcast was one of those like first resources that our therapist was like hey if you have no clue where to begin just like listen to these people there are other Hmm. folks out there who are doing this exactly (laughs) 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 y'all are thanks
1: therapist
3: (laughs) yeah thank you Sam's therapist (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah so I'd love to take us back to talking about capitalism but not like this is not a political show right this is a show about relationships and so Mm -hmm. it's not about that but I think that that concept of how not only like capitalism, it's like you say capitalism and it, it almost like becomes meaningless because it's like such a huge concept and such a large thing. But more specifically, I'm really interested in some of the connections that you've drawn between consumer behavior and how it affects how we approach relationships and sex. Like in kind of in more specific particular ways rather than just kind of makes us want to own people but kind of how does that actually show up in in practice you know what kind of things have you noticed and what kind of connections have you seen with that
0: yeah so like we say when we're talking about like ownership mentality that's a really loaded word and it shows up in lots of different ways depending on the relationship that different folks have But one of the things that I find is really big is like our entitlement to other people's time and energy, right? That's really what I say when I'm using the term ownership is that instead of asking somebody, hey, can I spend time with you? You're saying like, if you care about me, you will spend time with me. And it's that Mm. desire to be able to control and in a in. It's hard because like all of this happens within loving relationships. So the intent isn't malicious. And that's why the words domination feel kind of at odds with love. But when we've been taught that that's how we relate to one another, I think we kind of forget that we do need to give other people the permission to tell us how they're going to behave towards us rather than us telling them how they need to behave in order to fit Mm. our needs. So I know that's like kind of a nuanced way of answering that question. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. The other thing that I see really come out of this is the idea that like monogamy is the only way to exist in the world a lot of folks don't necessarily tie that back to like our economic structure but i think it is important to talk about the fact that monogamy was kind of socially constructed in order to help with labor reproduction Mm. and create sort of these boundaries for how we're going to organize our society I think a lot of people have this tendency to be like, ah, well, humans are naturally monogamous. And I don't know that there's much truth to that. And it's very funny that within the context of like a such a materialist world that suddenly we need to go back to nature when it comes to relationship structures. I like to tell folks like, no, you don't necessarily need to be stuck in this compulsory monogamous relationship structure. If it does not work for you, again, I'm not here to tell people like how to live their lives. If they want to be monogamous, fantastic, like go for it, do it, do it deliberately and do it well. I think that all of these ideas, like y'all talk about a lot can apply to regardless of how many people you're dating, what kind of relationship structure you end up in. But for me, the idea is really to be able to empower people to say like, You do have a choice and you get to, you know, create relationships that are meaningful for you and other people, right? You have to be able to negotiate those boundaries together rather than just taking on all of these scripts, especially since some of them don't necessarily serve us because they prompt us to act out of like jealousy and i don't know how else to say that <laughs> all, Just, like, all the stuff ownership. Yeah. yeah all the things yeah, yeah. does that yeah. make sense i don't know if that answers your question succinctly enough
1: no it, oh, it's definitely. really interesting and it's it's something that's been on my mind because i i recently read a book um about self-worth that was mm. kind of framing self-worth in terms of financial worth mm. and kind of kind of drawing a lot of, you know, like analogies and and metaphors with how we spend versus what we earn in sort of a self-worth way in terms of what Mm -hmm. we give to other people versus what we feel like we're allowed to receive and stuff like that. And so that's kind of been on my mind. And when you were talking about that problem of feeling this sense of entitlement to someone's time, like, if you care about me, you will spend time with me rather than you or know. if
3: you're coupled with me, that means automatically the, that you're going to have to spend yeah. time with yeah. me. Yeah, But I,
1: I I think that what this book brought up for me was kind of the flip side of that too, is that the same thing that might make people work for less than they earn could also show up in a relationship of kind of like, well, I don't deserve that for whatever reason because mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. I'm worth that and or I shouldn't. Like I'm not entitled to that because that's never the message I've gotten that I deserve things to be given to me or that I should ever get more than I think I deserve, and that like kind of on the flip side that can also really harm us in our relationships and for you know cause us to push away kindness or feel like oh if someone did something kind for me I've got to do way more kind things for them to the point that I'm burning myself out and that I feel miserable.
0: Absolutely. And I think just to piggyback off of that, there's also like the productivity aspect and the time constraints mm. that come in with capitalism, right? Like we're expected to always be working. And mm. again, like if you're spending 40 to 60 hours at a job, there's good chance that you're not necessarily given enough room to be fully present in your relationships and sometimes we default back to like pretty cruddy behavior with our partners we take them for granted we you know like push them aside in order because a we don't have enough time or because we're fucking tired and so i think there's just all these Other ways in which capitalism does impact our relationships beyond just, you know, ownership. I also like to think about the way that sometimes like we end up in these situations where like we, I don't know how to say this, like just hop on the relationship escalator and Mm -hmm. end up just pushing ourselves into marriage whether we want that or not because again like our relationships should, are or... being right they're being measured on this also very capitalist industrial like marriage industrial complex right we're all mm-hmm. being funneled into that kind of relationship structure marriage
3: industrial um, complex i love that yeah. thats oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure yeah. i do
0: think like, the Jeez. wedding
2: dress industry all of it right yeah the a ring huge thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but but also on top of that there's Mm -hmm. so many forces not the least of which are economic forces like pushing that tide forward right like there's so many economic incentives to not just be married but to also appear coupled and monogamous Mm. you know it's it's about the appearance right like Mm -hmm. i mean god knows there's so many like married couples out there who are like kinky as hell and non-monogamous as hell but the incentive lies in can you look monogamous? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. E- and e- economic incentives attached to that as well.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: So while we're on this topic, I also wanted to hear your thoughts about rainbow capitalism and what do we do about that? Well, first of mm. all, maybe let's start. Can I ask you to clarify and explain what rainbow capitalism is for our listeners? <sighs>
0: Yes. So rainbow capitalism is like the appropriation of queer culture in order to sell us things from companies that do not necessarily have our best interest in mind. Mm. So we've seen this. I'll give you an example of like every time June hits, right, it's Pride Month, <laughs> Target and all of these giant corporations that just do not care about the queer community that put money into legislation that actively harms <laughs> our, you know, trans rights, our ability to just function in the world. will put out a bunch of merch plastered with rainbow flags, which mm-hmm. are often not designed by queers. There's no queer involvement in it. And it's really mm-hmm. just in order for them to appear like they care. It's that facade of caring and again, capitalizing on us. I think there's a huge, huge, like the queer community has an enormous buying power. And a lot of corporations recognize that we do buy a lot of things. And so they want us, they want our business <laughs> without actually caring to have us in leadership in leadership positions, you know, on their design teams or anything else. And I'll give you this perfect example. When I was working at Colgate, I was on their corporate social responsibility team which deals with these types of marketing initiatives and I was not out at Colgate mm. because I made the calculated decision that I did not believe that I would be able to get promoted and continue to have any opportunities within their corporate structure based on the type of rhetoric that I had heard from their like senior management talk about queer people but Genius. here we were creating these advertisements that had the rainbow toothpaste. They're still using it today, which every June I kind of like pop off and get mad at Colgate about mm-hmm. it now that I don't work <laughs> for them. But, you know, it's very much just uh, we're going to pretend like we care and we don't actually. And the problem with that, because, again, like it seems like an, a non-issue for a lot of folks. But what happens is that smaller companies that are actually queer owned queer run are having their business taken away by these enormous corporations Mm. because again like as consumers we're looking for something that's easy and if i'm thinking about like where i'm going to get my pride merch it might be harder for me to go find a little local shop that is queer owned That might not necessarily have what I'm looking for versus these enormous companies that are everywhere and available. So that's kind of what we're trying to push back against, as well as things like having corporations telling us that like we can't have kink or we can't have leather at Pride. Those are Mm. our events and Citibank doesn't get to tell us how we get to show up in these spaces. And unfortunately, since it's become such a moneymaker, that's exactly what tends to happen.
2: Do you think along the same vein that polyamorous capitalism is on the horizon or do you think it's already here? I bet. You know, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure
0: what that would look like, but anytime that people can monetize a cultural phenomena, a trend, especially things that were once a little bit more underground, they will. <laughs> so y'all y'all will have to keep me updated about what polyam capitalism Just saying.
3: images I- <laughs> of the three just like
0: the
2: feet, the yeah, three yeah the three pairs of feet, feet under a exactly. sheet oh God. God. in the bed feet under uh-huh. no uh, I yeah I do...
1: threesome toothpaste I'm sorry just,
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> like,
1: wait, wow. it'll be that?
2: it'll be yeah like the triple size toothpaste needs. tube with like a right. three pack of toothbrush is attached and there you so go like yeah. there right. you go you're done you're ready for the morning after it's Ooh. all that they're gonna think polyamory is. <laughs> yeah
0: i actually yeah. have a great thing to share with y'all i don't oh. know if you know this but one of my cute friends owns a small indie sex toy company called cute little fuckers step is polyamorous and he bundles his toys and calls it the polyam pack because you oh, share with all of your <laughs> right. friends so nice. there is a thing like that but that is actually queer and polyam owned um it's not
2: mega corporation dude yeah, That's awesome. right. <laughs> well shout out to cute little fuckers <laughs> no i i do have questions about that because on the one hand sometimes i wonder You know, is polyam capitalism actually going to be a thing or is Mm. it or because polyamory and non-monogamy shows up in so many different forms, it's going to be kind of subsumed to all the different offsets of capitalism, right? Of the Mm. like the rainbow capitalism or... This is the subset of capitalism that's applying to the Fifty Shades of Grey crowd. Or, you know, is it all just going to kind of be fragmented into those things? Or is there ever going to be a time where there's recognition like, oh, polyamorous people have all this buying power. Oh, these polycules that move in together need to buy all this IKEA furniture. Like we got to appeal to them. Is
1: mm-hmm. it going to become its
2: own very distinct thing when we're going to see like three pairs of feet under sheets like just everywhere we look? I don't know. I'm just really curious about what the future is going to hold in that regard.
0: At the same time, like, there is something to be said about the, like, widespread acceptance. You know, I was, like, looking at a stat recently, fact check me on this, where it was something like in 2004, 60% of the American population disapproved of queer marriage, and now we're at the reversal of that, where 60% do approve. So... I'm not like defending rainbow capitalism at all, but oftentimes it is an indicator of more of like the social changes that we're seeing, which is really, really positive. So even if, you know, Ikea decides to come out with a polyam line, like it might be
2: cheesy as fuck, but here we are. Like, <laughs> that, that, and that's awesome. Yeah. And again. that's the difficult thing because I've also thought <laughs> that mm-hmm. of kind of like, unfortunately, sure. I think that the more that you could demonstrate that polyamorous folk as a market exists, mm-hmm. that would help rise that tide, essentially, or, you know, help support that. So it is, yeah, it feels icky, but also at the same time, it's kind of like, well, I guess there's a certain amount of it that works just by that normalizing factor. Mm -hmm. You know, corporations think it's okay, therefore it must be okay.
1: I I think we've talked about this in the past, actually, when we've done our episodes about polyamory in, in the media. Yeah, That, I know, like, for me, I always think back to when I was a kid, like, the only gayness I saw on or like non straightness for men specifically that I saw on TV was like SNL sketches where like the guys Mm -hmm. would kiss each other and it was hilarious right that Mm -hmm. it was like it was a joke like just its existence was a joke right or like gay characters were always a joke but even then I was still seeing that and going oh well like okay that's a thing I could do you know That, Mm -hmm. that it still was better than not seeing it at all and being like, this can't be a thing and that that can't exist and this can't be that at all. So it's like this weird thing. And I see the rainbow capitalism, like you were saying about exposure to it, it is that same thing that even if that company, their practices are not supportive of it, just the fact that so many people are getting inundated with those images, it's going, okay, this must be a normal part of life then if I'm seeing this all the time from big companies. So yeah, it is yeah. such this weird mix of feelings Mm -hmm. about that
2: the real deal with the devil Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah (laughs) yeah and I think it really comes down to who gets to own narratives right I think for so long it's always been cis straight people who get to decide how queer folks are portrayed and that's really what the underlying issue with rainbow capitalism is Is that this is not giving us the ability to represent ourselves the way that we would like to be seen and that we would like to be shown. It is being filtered through, like, yeah, a cishet gaze, right? Very similarly to how we see, you know, talks about like the male gaze portraying women a certain way. I would say that rainbow capitalism acts kind of in a similar fashion, right? Of being able to give straight people the power to own our narratives rather than giving us the ability to Mm. have that control. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: Yeah, definitely. That does remind me of what we run into often. People will reach out to us to say, hey, check out this Netflix show. It has a triad in it. Or, hey, there's this kind of B plot in this show that I'm watching that talks about non-monogamy. And So often there is that felt frustration of it Mm -hmm. does not feel like someone who actually lives this has written this, or it feels like maybe they did write it, but then it had to be filtered and edited and cut and made more palatable for this primarily straight monogamous cis audience that I do still feel there is just that constant rumblings of tension and frustration of really not feeling like literally what you said, like I'm being allowed to see myself the way that I want to be seen or represented the way that I want to be represented.
0: Yeah. And I think the really unfortunate part is there's a ton of fantastic polyamorous creators, right? Like, Mm. I mean, y'all are a testament to this. Have y'all been given the opportunity to create a Netflix show? No. Right. And I think that's where the (laughs) capitalism part comes back in. And when we're saying like this creates a hierarchy of who is valid it also creates a hierarchy of who gets to tell the stories even if they have no business telling those stories. People who fall outside of the norm are constantly being cut short and just being told like hey sit down you don't know what you're talking about even if we own our experiences and I think that's the real frustration of Mm -hmm. these conversations for me. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. So we're going to move on to talk about unlearning sex negativity and talking about your Bayes framework that you came up with. I'm really interested to learn about that. But first, we're going to take a break to talk about how you out there can support this show. In order for us to do that, we do need money because we do live in capitalism. And one of the great (laughs) things actually about being on a sex podcast network is that the types of advertisers that will even give us the time of day are already at least closer to this side of the fence in terms of like being open to these things and stuff like that. So that is something that I'm really pleased about that we're able to have good sponsors like these who give us money to help this show keep coming to all y'all out there for free.
2: to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code MULTI.
3: Alrighty, and we're back. So I want to talk about unlearning in general, because I think that is almost a low-hanging fruit of non-monogamy and I guess like sex education and a lot of things, just unlearning all of the things that capitalism and our society at large are telling us that we are and that we should believe about ourselves and that we should believe about things like our sexuality and who we are. And so I want to talk about unlearning sex negativity. Is it sort of, you know, it, does one do that as a means to become more sex positive? Or it, it just let's talk about like, yeah, unlearning sex negativity in general about ourselves.
0: Yeah. So I guess the first thing that I like to do is just define what we're talking about when we're saying sex positivity, sex negativity. Mm Because I think a lot of folks unfortunately confuse sex negativity with asexuality, which is absolutely not true. You can definitely be asexual and sex positive. What we're talking about is giving people the choice to really be empowered to decide when they're having sex and to engage in any kind of pleasure that is consensual that is enthusiastic and that makes them feel good. So it's really about, de- again, like deconstructing some of the hierarchies that we have. Society has placed uh, heterosexual penetrative sex at the top of the hierarchy and has pretty much said that anything below that or anything outside of heterosexual penetration does not count as actual real sex, right? And I'm doing bunny ears, because <laughs> that's obviously not true. And so when I'm talking about like unlearning sex negativity, it has to do with two things, right? It has to do with the slut shaming, the guilt, and the bad feelings that we have when we think about ourselves, when we think about our authentic sexual expressions, but it also has to do with the hypersexualization that happens and the objectification in media too Mm. right because sex negativity isn't like we said about no sex like we (laughs) live in a society where we're constantly bombarded with sex it's just the vision of sex is very a singular and also Mm. reinforces a lot of the hierarchies of power right we see mostly women being seen as like sex objects men are always placed in this like quote-unquote predator role where they have to obtain and dominate somebody else so for us the idea is really to be able to say like no we're going to expand this we're going to place pleasure at the center of these conversations and we're going to give like a whole spectrum of sexuality some validity and the ability to Yeah, be experienced by whoever in whatever ways that they want. I know that seems, again, super, super vague. And how do you even go about and learning that? But yeah, that's kind of like my mission in life is just giving people the ability
2: to reclaim what feels good to them. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to a question that I have about this because I, I feel I feel so glad to see, especially over the course of the last 5, 10, you know, maybe 15-ish years or so, so many more educators stepping up to talk about sex positivity, sex negativity, ways to undo that, ways to at least become aware of that in yourself. A phenomenon that I have noticed is, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, but what I have noticed is there's a lot of women sex educators, like trans sex educators, queer sex educators who are talking a lot about sex positivity and sex negativity, And it definitely seems like a kind of thing where because I think men, especially like cis straight men, tend to be cast in the like a predatory role, just like sex fiends kind of role, kind of the sense of like, you're not allowed to really talk about sex positivity. Mm. You know, and this is something that I've run into with, I've had some clients who are men who are aware of their sex negativity, aware of wanting to change it, but then realizing I feel like all of the resources out there are are targeted towards like women, you know, or non-binary people. And I'm wondering, is that something that you've also noticed in this space?
0: Yeah, it is definitely something that I've noticed. I mean, there's certain organizations that are doing phenomenal work. I'm thinking of like Men Can Stop Rape being one of those. Um, And yeah, there's a few people out there, but you're right. It is a handful of folks that I can name off the top of my head where i know tons of queer sex educators and tons of women educators too and i would say that that really goes back to a power dynamic situation right women have mostly been told like you are a passive uh receptor right or passive receptacle i guess and sex is done to you so I see like this shift in attitude almost being like part of the reclamation process. Like we need women, we need queer folks to be able to step into their powers and almost like giving men the opportunity to take a step back. And that doesn't mean that they need to not engage in this content, right? I would say that men should be reading Exactly the same kind of literature Mm. and listening to these educators because we do have a lot of good things to say. And, you know, obviously, I teach from a queer perspective, first and foremost, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to a variety of people. I keep it pretty broad. And if you can, you know, if you're a man, this stuff still applies. Like consent education <laughs> is gender um, neutral, I guess. And so is a lot of the other things that we're talking about.
2: Well, things, it seems like it falls into the same camp that a lot of these conversations fall into that. Often, I mean, sometimes an unfortunate side effect of language is once you label this as like, oh, this is queer sex ed, that then I think there's a lot of like straight people where in their brain they're kind of like, oh, okay, it doesn't apply to me. Hmm. Okay, it just kind of disappears. Or, mm-hmm. oh, women's issues, okay, don't apply to me. Just kind of switch it off. Or people of color's issues, okay, just kind of switch it off. And I mm-hmm. think the same thing happens here where it, it's not even necessarily like people are very intentionally choosing to ignore it. It's almost kind of like, oh, I'm not in the spotlight, therefore I don't need to care which is, you know, I guess a problematic cognitive bias in and of itself.
1: I would say even sometimes not just that I don't have to care, but like I'm kind of not allowed to care. Mm-hmm. I do feel like there mm-hmm. there can be that kind of feeling. And, and it's how, you know, queer people feel a lot in mainstream culture. It's like, well, this sure. isn't really for me. Like I'm not quite allowed to belong to this. And so in that way, it's not to say like, oh no, you know, poor men feel like, <laughs> that this isn't a place for them but at the same time that's kind of hurting all of us though right because we need everyone mm-hmm. to be on board with this so it is mm-hmm. i don't know it is a tricky thing there to find that that balance of how to make it like inviting even if it's not like this is all about you and the spotlights mm-hmm. on you and that's that's challenging i think
0: yeah it it's a really great thing to bring up and i think that this is where like there is a lot of power where there's you know female voices with male like co-educators i'm thinking specifically Mm. of like the people behind oh joy sex toys i don't know if you're familiar with that comic strip like erica moen and her husband matthew both of them like are talking from a woman and a male perspective and you're really getting like fantastic education that i think changes the way that a lot of people would think about this from yeah two people who i mean are a really sweet couple but also just like kind of covering the spectrum of experiences and i think that's fantastic too
1: that's awesome i feel like i've maybe seen some of their stuff yeah I'm just not sure now familiar, if it was theirs but... or not but that sounds really familiar <laughs> yeah yeah it- is, so we've heard the
3: term and talked about it a bit on this show about sex neutrality. Mm. And what, what do you think about that? And also is, is it even possible to be like, too sex positive, <laughs> like I know. Yeah, this is something that we've discussed and debated a bit on this show. But I'm interested in your <laughs> your ideas around that.
0: I've started using the word pleasure a lot more rather than sex. A lot of it is just because of how much I get censored on Instagram. Mm, <laughs> they don't like yeah. that word at all. And I think if we reframe the conversation about being pleasure positive. It really does apply to everybody, right? What I'm saying when I'm speaking of sex education is, like I said, oftentimes not even about sex. Sex, it is just about like connecting either on a physical, emotional, or intellectual level with another person in ways that I've been watching a lot of Murray Kondo. So sorry, but in a way that <laughs> sparks joy. Oh, no, yeah. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> My partner has a big crush on her. So, uh, you know, I can't help it, <laughs> but yeah, I think. Being sex neutral, to a certain degree, it's kind of a meaningless phrase, at least for me, in the sense that, like, all right, you can not care about lots of things, but it's easy also to kind of detach from it. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about pleasure, like, the more you feel good, the more you do good. I think that's a Adrian Murray Brown quote, and I really stand behind that.
3: (laughs) Blood-blowing.
2: Yeah, no, and I think I especially love separating out pleasure from sex as well. You know, the idea that one doesn't necessarily directly equal the other, I think makes a lot of sense. On this topic of unlearning, I want to circle back to unlearning compulsory monogamy or toxic monogamy. And so first, Separately from what we've talked about already, which is about these feelings of possessiveness or these feelings of ownership, what are other kind of common ways that you see toxic monogamy or compulsory monogamy showing up in relationships?
0: Yeah, I think there's just like a lot of social pressure to couple. People who are single are constantly being like asked when they're going to pair back up, right? There's this idea that we're ranking how... Fit a partner is for like long term commitment, right? Like, friends will give their opinions on like the validity of a relationship, always, like, I guess, with the assumption that marriage is the ultimate goal there's like that relationship escalator that we continue talking about. I think these are all forms of toxic or compulsory monogamy. It's really hard to see any other choice beyond being in a two-person pairing. And obviously that's not the case. We can all attest to the fact that we relate to folks in very different ways. And so for me, The first step is just giving people the ability to say, you do not have to follow these rules, right? The script that was given to you, it can work. Parts of the script can work for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take this as a default. You do have the option to to customize. And I think for me, that's really the unlearning process is taking what we've learned about relationships and saying like, does this feel good? Again, going back to the pleasure thing, right? Does this give me pleasure? Is this sustainable for me? Am I going to lead my most authentic life if I follow this norm or do I need to tweak it? And, you know, I often talk about like bedrooms. A lot of people just take it for granted that when they become a couple, they absolutely have to share a bedroom, which is Mm. not true. And that's, again, just like another way that we have internalized like compulsory monogamy. We're just given a lot of these, I guess, norms, and it's really up to us to question all of them.
3: Yeah. Okay. So this is something that you created that we are really excited to talk about. It's all over your Instagram page and with your beautiful graphics. But let's talk about Bayes. What is it? <laughs> Tell us all about it.
0: <laughs> Lovely. Okay. So boundaries, agreements, expectations, and support. It's awesome. talking about what I can do, what I expect you to do, what we will do together, and how we're going to do it. And that's pretty much the framework as we run through it and like a two-second explanation. Mm-hmm. But really... When it comes to polyamory, especially as it relates to like peer support sessions, people get stuck, right? There's Mm -hmm. disagreements, they don't know how to proceed, they don't even know like where to begin. Because like we're saying, we there is a period of unlearning where you've taken this script of compulsory monogamy, you've internalized it your whole life, and then suddenly you have to practice polyamory. And a lot of the like, quote unquote, rules no longer apply. Mm. And folks just don't know where to begin. So I like to tell people, all right, first step is like, what can you do? How can you be your best self in this relationship? That's going to be the boundaries, right? And I always use the magic phrase, I will. So I will treat my partners with kindness and respect. That's an example of a boundary that it is up to me to set with my partners and it is up to
3: me to maintain the framework first of all just because Mm -hmm. boundaries so many people feel like it's like a a line a demarcation like you will not cross this and instead Mm -hmm. you just talked about it in a way that's like super positive which is really lovely i I appreciate that yeah it's very
0: like we said anti-capitalist because i'm saying like i get to choose what I do with myself Mm -hmm. I don't go around telling other people how they have to behave like nobody can violate my boundaries because there's something that I can maintain for myself I can violate my own boundaries for sure (laughs) I do a lot of times by not upholding them but really that's on me yeah. And then we get to the agreements, which are shared boundaries, right? So if two people decide we will treat each other with kindness and respect, there you go, that's an agreement. And then we move on to the letter E, which stands for expectations. And that one I form more as a request, right? Because mm-hmm. again, we have to understand that we cannot force other people to behave in a certain way if we're going to act ethically and in our lovely anti-capitalist way once again. And so my expectations are often like, hey, can you set this boundary for yourself? Like, can you treat me with kindness and respect? I also use like examples with STIs because I think that's a really clear way for people to understand this. So an example of a boundary that I set with myself is like, I will get tested once every six months, right? Mm-hmm an agreement that we can have together is we will get tested every six months, right? Or we will be fluid bonded. That's a really good example of an agreement that two people can make. And then an expectation would be saying something like, I expect you, can you use a condom, right? Every time that we hook up, or can you use a barrier with your other partners, for example? And the thing with the expectation is that then people have the possibility to either accept it or reject it right like we said you can't control other folks and i keep you know repeating that over and over and over again i think that's like the bulk of my peer support sessions like let's focus back on ourselves what we have power over we can't force other people to behave how we want and so within the expectation part you know you have to sort of take into consideration how your partner can and can't behave and if they say like hey no i can't use barriers with my other partners for whatever reason then it's up to you to change your own boundaries if they're not going to use barriers with their partners then you can say like i'm not going to hook up with you for example so those are all that's kind of like the b a e part the last one is the s right support and i think that's really important. Because again, like we're trying to create respectful, meaningful, deep relationships, at least that's what I'm going for with my partners. And so there does need to be a level of like validation. And it's hard to set expectations. It's hard to set boundaries for yourself. And so within that framework, it's really important to be able to say like, hey, you know, I'm struggling with this and I need this kind of support from you and making sure that we're creating those like tangible requests from one another in order to be able to make the boundaries, agreements, expectations actually possible in the first place.
2: You've done like entire workshops and many hours (laughs) of peer support sessions and like created so much content around this. So very well done for doing like the five minute TED talk version (laughs) of it. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much. Something that I will say I really love about this framework that incorporates all these different facets, right? Because I think to look, to zoom out and look at what I've seen in the non monogamous community is, you know, let's, I mean, if we're going to look at kind of the modern day non monogamous community and polyamorous community, you know, first, so many people were coming out of like the swinger scene in mm-hmm. the 70s, 80s, 90s. That was so much about, I guess I would say very heavy in the kind of agreements and rules, right? Where it's like, that's the engine that drives this is like, we decide as a couple what happens, who's allowed in, who's not, what you can do, what I can do. And then that's the way, that's the only way that polyamory ever works. And then in more recent years, of course, there's been a lot of backlash to that, right? Of no, 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 we got to get rid of that couple's privilege. We got to get rid of that couple hierarchy and it's got to be all about my boundaries and just protecting me and what I do and what I will tolerate and won't tolerate. Maybe even to an extent of being very hyper around these things. And I really love this framework that kind of incorporates a little bit of, yeah, it's about you protecting yourself and it's about you agreeing with your partner and it's about you being able to express your preferences and your wishes, but your partner's still an autonomous individual who can reject it. And it's also about both of you getting support at the same time. So like, I really love the Bayes framework for that kind of this knitting together of all these different aspects where it's not quite all about one tool or the other being i guess like the silver bullet that makes everything work
0: yeah absolutely and like i have to say the reason this all came about is because like i suck at all of these things (laughs) like i'm not good (laughs) at setting boundaries or making agreements or any of it and i think especially like in the beginning of my polyam practice it was such a struggle You know, like when I saw my primary partner suddenly like fall head over heels in love with somebody else and like the process of being deprioritized as a primary partner so that somebody else could take on that place, I guess, in his life was really challenging and we had to have a lot of difficult conversations. And a lot of times it was like, well, wait a second, what are we even talking about? And, you know, just to reframe like a super controversial thing, which is like veto power, right? It's something that I absolutely do not believe in. I don't think that is conducive to the ethical part of non monogamy, but it's still a temptation for a lot of couples. And what I say is like, all right, if you hate your more, right? That happens a lot. A lot of people just do not enjoy their presence, have tons of problems with them for whatever reason. It's not right to force a partner to break up with them but within this framework you can also say like hey can you right i'm setting an expectation like i'm making a request can you break up with this person and then you're giving that person the opportunity to back out and say yes i can or no i can't and it no longer becomes about me holding power over my partner and their other relationships it really becomes about me like being able to assert my needs and assert my opinion while still giving that person like the full control over their relationships and I think that was like one of the big I guess like learning (laughs) curves for me was saying like just because you know my metamore isn't somebody that I necessarily appreciate and I had that impulse because like other people had vetoed me in my relationship I was just like oh wait a minute I can do that too fun I was like no actually that's not true at all like I don't want to be that person so how do we communicate through these really challenging situations in ways that are going to feel like authentic to who I am and who I want to be within relationships
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I really, really like that. And it seems like this is also a framework that you really recommend for people who are, you know, just starting to open up their relationship or even before opening up their relationship, correct?
0: Well, I recommend it in the sense of like, here's a thing and you take what you want from it and customize it so that it works for you, right? I'm definitely not like a prescriptive type of person. I don't think that there is one framework that's going to work for everyone just like there's not one relationship structure that's going to work across the board some people really really love you know like setting boundaries in very different ways some people still believe that it's about setting rules for other folks and that works within their polycule that works within their relationship and who am i to say that that's wrong you know if this resonates with you then please (laughs) and Mm -hmm. usually i offer it to people who are just stuck honestly like i think it's a good way to at least get some kind of conversation flowing if nothing else
3: well, Sam, this has been really awesome. I, I've, I, it's just lovely to always talk to other educators in this space because we get to have like deeper, more philosophical conversations about all of this and also your background in consumer psychology. It just brings like a whole new and interesting layer to all of this. So we've loved really getting to talk to you. This has been great. I, before we go, where can our listeners find more of you and your work?
0: Ah, Well, it's been absolutely a pleasure chatting with all of you. So thank you so much for having me. I'm not going to plug my Instagram because again, I don't like it. This is not working with my capitalist or anti-capitalist framework. Got it.
3: So head yeah. over to
0: my Patreon and go to patreon.com slash shrimp teeth. Y'all can pay me for the work that I do. I'm putting in some work. You can find me there. And if you want some free content, just check out our podcast. It's called queer pleasure by shrimp teeth. And yeah, that's where you can touch base with us. We've got a discord channel and all the good stuff there too.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Again, thank you so much. So we are going to be staying with Sam for our bonus episode for this week, where we're going to be diving into the concept of vegan sex education, which should be interesting. (laughs) Yes. So for this week, if you go to our Instagram stories, we're asking you, what has helped you to unlearn sex negativity? Really curious to hear everybody's responses. The best place for you to share your thoughts with other listeners uh, on this episode is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash Multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvinetta. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Onand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com.
1: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.